This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to speak a little bit about my father, Herb York, and the 60 years in public service as first a weapons maker and second, a major and effective voice for arms control and nonproliferation what he sometimes called his journey from Hiroshima to Geneva. Many of here you here will remember my dad when he was on campus. He was the grand old man of UCSD, but I'd like you to imagine him as the boy wonder that he truly was. As a 21-year-old, he came to Berkeley to work on the Manhattan Project with Ernest Lawrence, and then he went to Oak Ridge, Tennessee for the project. As an aside, mom and dad had their very first date at Robert Oppenheimer's house at a St. Patrick's Day party (laughs) in the Bay Area. And then, from 21, imagine the 31-year-old who was the founding director of the Livermore Lab in 1952, where they focused on big science and nuclear weapons design. And then the 36-year-old who Eisenhower brought to Washington to fix the Sputnik problem. Dad was known as the Missile Czar, informally, and he became the first director of defense research and engineering in the Pentagon and the first chief scientist of ARPA, now called DARPA. And he was briefly the Secretary of Defense, in particular during JFK's inauguration. Dad was alone in the Pentagon at that giant desk. So for four years in Washington, Dad visited the White House about once a week, and he was a de facto link between three secretaries of defense and Eisenhower's White House, including Robert McNamara. We had a hotline to the war room in the bedroom, and I got in hot water for playing with it. (laughs) A lot, a lot. Um, Dad was responsible. It's quite amazing in retrospect. Imagine him at 36, responsible for everything going on in the defense establishment that involved research, development, tests, and evaluation. That meant he was in charge of strategic warfare, tactical warfare, air defense, naval defense systems, and intelligence. One of his signal achievements, and that he was especially proud of, was that he uh, wrestled outer space and Werner von Braun away from the military in order to set up NASA as a civilian endeavor. He felt that outer space should not be militarized. He said, outer space is a place, not a program. Um, and in fact, he was, he was, the military was so angry that the furious Secretary of the Army in an article in the Washington Post described Dad as a too young intellectual and worse, as a known Democrat. In 1959, at the age of 38, Dad had a major heart attack. And Eisenhower put him in his own presidential suite at Walter Reed. The next door patient was Vice President Richard Nixon. And uh, Dad managed to wangle an invitation into his suite with Pat Nixon and their two girls. It was so crowded that I ended up sitting on Richard Nixon's bed with him in it. (laughs) Meanwhile, we shared a milkman with Betty and Jerry Ford. And this milkman took news about Dad back and forth between Mom and Betty. The heart attack was a motivator in Dad's accepting Clark Kerr's offer to start UCSD in 1961, although President Kennedy asked him twice to stay on in Washington, which was very flattering. But I would like to say that Dad viewed himself as a UC man always, and that he was in Washington, D.C. on secondment, but he was a University of California man. So finally, at only 39, He came to San Diego as the founding chancellor of UCSD. We are proud to say that with his initial leadership and vision, UCSD, by most formal measures, became the most successful of the new universities founded after World War II. While Dad was chancellor, he also served on LBJ's President's Scientific Advisory Committee, known as PSAC. In fact, when LBJ returned to the White House, On that horrible day from Dallas, Texas, he found the order to add Dad to the committee on JFK's desk in the Oval Office waiting for his signature.
After Dad resigned as chancellor in 1972, he focused his energies within the university on precisely the topic that had long constituted his major intellectual interest, the nuclear arms race. He testified against the anti-ballistic missiles uh, in the Senate and the Congress, and we suspect that that was what earned him his proud place on Nixon's enemy list. Under Carter, he became the U.S. ambassador to the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Talks in Geneva, negotiating with the British and the Russians until Reagan's inauguration in 1981. That same year, coming from quite opposite philosophies, Governor Jerry Brown and David Saxon, the president of the entire UC system, decided that if UC was going to continue its responsibility for managing the Livermore and Los Alamos nuclear labs, that UC also needed to expand our involvement in peace and security affairs. The result was IGCC, our host. The system-wide Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, with Dad as its first director. IGCC has expanded since then beyond nuclear proliferation to becoming a major source for analysis and action on other crucial national security matters. I'd like to touch briefly on the core of Dad's philosophy and his involvement with IGCC. Dad came to the conclusion, and it boils down to three points. One, defense of the population is impossible in the nuclear era. Two, our national security dilemma has no technical solution. And three, our only real hope for the long run lies in working out a political solution. Since the Livermore days, he worked on both sides of the national security equation. The title of his autobiography says it all, Making Weapons, Talking Peace. As an aside, I'd like to say that Dad was a favorite of Japanese TV and documentary makers who felt that his analysis of the war and the bomb was particularly thoughtful and helpful. People often ask me about Dad's evolution from making weapons to negotiating for peace. And in fact, there was no St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment for Dad. Instead, it was a slow and early evolution informed by intimate knowledge of our capabilities, Russia's capabilities, and the unthinkable, mad, mutual, assured destruction. Now we are in more perilous times as ownership of nuclear weapons has spread. As he said, this has been and remains our mutual and fundamental security dilemma. His words ring with even more urgency now we have irrational leaders, and political turmoil is crescendoing. I think institutions, I thank institutions like IGCC, who can make sense of it all and influence policy. Finally, I would like to say a few words about the human side of Dad. He came from a very poor family in Rochester, New York. My grandfather and great-grandfather were both train guards on the Buffalo, New York line. No one in his family had graduated from high school, and they were so poor that they paid the doctor's bill by sending Dad with a nickel every week down to the doctor's office. His interest in science was piqued when an eccentric uncle gave him a library book called Astronomie pour les dames. Ah, one wonders. He memorized all the huge numbers about outer space and dreamed of going there someday. He was threatened with expulsion from high school. He was a bit of a juvenile delinquent, had mostly CDs and Fs, until he, with the rest of his class, took the 1930s version of the SAT. The rest was history. University of Rochester to major in physics, then Lawrence and Oppenheimer, Fermi and Segre at Berkeley at age 21. He was keenly interested in everything. He loved nature. He loved Yosemite, even though he was profoundly colorblind. In fact, the only two colors he could see were the university colors, blue and yellow. <laughs> he also taught himself Greek, Latin, Russian, French, and Chinese just for fun, and he could write intercontinental ballistic missile in Chinese in a trice. He was very proud of that. 
His concerns included non-scientific affairs. When we came to La Jolla in 1961, for example, he decided that he should work on creating a better relation between San Diego and Tijuana. All four of us learned Spanish by watching Mexican soap operas every evening, yelling at the TV as the suspense mounted. Mom became a member of a women's social club in Tijuana, and I was inevitably a princesa in all of the club's fashion shows and the Tijuana debutante ball. (laughs) I think my date might actually be here. (laughs) Dad also worked on establishing relations with universities in Mexico and South America, where his biggest adventure was having dinner with the chancellor of the University of Peru and a man he described when he came home as the angriest man I ever met. That professor turned out to be Abimael Guzman, who then founded The Shining Path. (laughs) Dad would be so pleased to be remembered through this lecture series and would have been so delighted to have Sippy Livni here as our guest speaker at the Herb York Memorial Lecture. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Minister Livni. And with that, I'd like to hand the mic back to Ellie. A fitting guest for the, for the York Lecture today is Minister Tsipi Livni, another thoughtful and experienced commentator on policy, given her career in the Israeli government. Um, also fitting that she's a, a veteran, today on Veterans Day. She outranks me. She's an officer. Um, a lawyer by training, Tsipi Livni is the former Vice Prime Minister of Israel, a former Minister of Foreign Affairs, and has held a number of other ministries, including the Ministry of Justice, and was Israel's chief negotiator for peace between Israel and the Palestinians during the last two rounds in 2008 and 2013 of negotiations. She's held um, other ministerial positions, including the Minister of Regional Cooperation, the Minister of Immigrant Absorption, the Minister of Housing and Construction, and the Minister of Agriculture. Until January, Minister Livni was the leader of the centrist parties, including the largest party in Israel, and the leader of the opposition as such. She's fought for the values of the state of Israel as a Jewish democratic state and, and staunchly defended its democratic nature. She's a leading supporter of peace between Israel and the Palestinians based on the principle of two states for two people. Minister Livni today will address us today on security for Israel and her neighbors, challenges and opportunities. Please join me in welcoming Minister Livni. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eli, for uh, the introduction. I want to say in advance that I was Minister of Agriculture for three months, so don't ask questions about this. And it tells nothing about my talents, the fact that I had all this ministry. It tells everything about the poor system of elections in Israel. Uh, and uh, Rachel, uh, the way you represented your family and your father was so touching, wonderful, and inspiring. And uh, for me, I mean, I listened and I felt in the end of what you said like I knew your father, and I didn't. And I would like to acknowledge before I start another friend of mine that made this uh, uh, event possible. And this is uh, James Jameson, who is sitting here. Uh, uh, He's not only a friend. I mean, it's one thing to be successful in life. It's a completely different thing to... um, make it possible for others uh, to do their own success, to support young entrepreneurs, to share with them your insights, and try to make uh, the world a better place to all of us to live in. And thank you for your friendship and the opportunity to have this event. Uh, Okay, so uh, this is our troubled region. Yes. Uh, so anyway, since we are, uh, this is the Veteran Day, uh, Veteran Day basically uh, uh, represent, or the day is the day in which the First World War uh, finished. And I would like to jump for a moment to the day in which the Second World War uh, finished. And basically the whole idea was to have, after all the ho- horrific 
uh, things that happened to the Jewish people, to the entire world during the Second World War, to create a better world. And uh, uh, we faced uh, uh, an understanding by the US and Europe that we need to work together to create a better world. Uh, the Atlantic Charter was uh, signed and the NATO was established, the United Nations was established under the uh, idea of never again. And 55 years, more or less, uh, passed. And what's happening now? And everything now is changing. And frankly, I feel as a citizen of the world that uh, it's like walking on an unsolid uh, uh, earth because everything is, is changing. And um, having this understanding about the global situation, let's uh, speak a bit about our troubled region, which is a tough neighborhood. And uh, basically, um, after the Second World War, all the colonialist states decided to divide the region according to their own decision to different states. Uh, to some, they gave some presents, a state. To others, they created a state that was not basically related. Well, they made the decisions that they thought there are the right decisions. But basically, we are still suffering from uh, what was done by uh, the colonialist states uh, in the past. You know, I once met Tony Blair, and I told him that he's to blame about the situation between Israel and the Palestinians, as well as uh, the situation in India and uh, Pakistan and Kashmir. Uh, but now we are dealing with a completely different situation. And what's happening now in the region is that we have a religious war. And the religious war is between... Uh, Islamist groups that are fighting not, it's not the Islam against the other, it's this extreme Islamist group that would not accept what we represent. And when I say we, the meaning is the values of the free world. Uh, the meaning is also other uh, Muslims that are expressing their own religion in a more moderate manner. Uh, and therefore, uh, what we see in the region is that uh, basically the Middle East uh, produce and uh, export euro internationally. Uh, Iran, as a rock state, basically sponsors its proxies in Lebanon, uh, in Gaza Strip, uh, involved in the situation in uh, Yemen. And this is part of a religious ideology and an idea that one day they will create a religious caliphate uh, in the region. And this is a threat not only to Israel, but to other Gulf states that represent, that represent uh, I don't want to enter into Sunni Shia, but basically this is part of what we see in the region, that Iran represents the Shia uh, extreme ideology, religious ideology, against uh, all, all the rest. So while, while Iran is talking about wiping Israel all off the map, uh, they try to achieve nuclear weapon, and this is a threat to the entire world, but yet Israel is in the midst, midst of uh, this situation. Now, Israel is exposed to all these challenges because, one, Israel is uh, part of the free world. Israel is a democracy. Israel share with the United States the same values, and we are part of the free world in this uh, place that represents something that is completely different from uh, our values. Uh, and more than that, Israel is a Jewish state, uh, is the nation state of the Jewish people in this surrounded by Muslim states uh, with an ongoing conflict between us uh, and the Palestinians. Now, I would like to say more than a few words about this conflict because this is the reason for me to be in politics, basically. Um, and, you know, talking about, well, you spoke about your father, I thought about my parents, and I think that instead of just giving speeches, I will share with you some of, of my family, stories in my, families, in my family. So my parents came to Israel long before the State of Israel was established. They came to Israel in 1925, uh, like young children. Uh, both of them decided to join the Irgun, the Etzel. Uh, it was a group of freedom fighters that fought for the establishment of the state of Israel against the British army, the British mandate, that was in this tiny place between Jordan River and Mediterranean Sea. Both of them uh, met while robbing a British money train at night. <laughs> uh, my father, with other guys, stopped the train and uh, 
My mother, with other uh, uh, two uh, fighters, took the money, put it in uh, nylon socks, and uh, put it around uh, like they're pregnant, and they took the money, not to their pockets. These are days of corruption, not at all. Uh, it was uh, in order to buy a weapon for the Ugun. And both of them were in prison, not in the same operation, but in different operation. Uh, my father uh, was in Accra prison and was in charge on the operation that broke out of prison. And my mother uh, escaped from jail uh, in something that for many years I thought that this is a kind of a fairy tale. I mean, when I grew up, they didn't uh, tell me stories about uh, Red Hood or Snow White. It was about my father in prison, my mother in prison, <laughs> and the way they escaped. So the story of my mother is that um, she asked somebody when she was in jail to inject her milk, and this created uh, the... the uh, effects of a disease. They took her to a hospital. They thought that it is appendicitis, appendicitis. So when they left the room and washed their hands in order to operate her, she jumped from the second floor and escaped. So for many years I thought that it's impossible until I met somebody who told me that his father was the guy that inject, injected the milk. <laughs> and later I met somebody, an old lady, who told me that one day she heard somebody knocking at the door and my mother was there with the hospital robe. So why I tell you all this? Because they believed in greater Israel. They believed in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land. Uh, the symbol of the Irgun was uh, greater Israel. And greater Israel meaning... Uh, you see this tiny place, meaning uh, Israel on both sides of Jordan River as part of a biblical, historical relation between the Jewish people and uh, the, land of, uh, the land of Israel. And they got married. They are the first couple that got married uh, the day the state of Israel was born. Both of them came out of uh, the underground. And... Um, I share this with you not just because this is really a great story, uh, but because according to their request, they ask us to tattoo on the stone on their grave the map of greater Israel. So they believe in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land. But then, in 1947, the United Nations decided to solve a conflict. And the conflict was between those Jews living in this tiny place between Jordan River and Mediterranean Sea and Muslims, Arabs, living there as well. And the decision was to create two states. One a Jewish state, the state of Israel, and the other was an Arab state. And for my parents, on one hand, it was a great uh, uh, idea to have the recognition of the international community on the establishment of a Jewish state. But on the other hand, the idea was it was a partition plan to divide the land into two different states. So with mixed feelings, uh, the Jewish uh, organizations, uh, which was basically the, f the, 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 the future government of the state of Israel, decided to agree and to embrace the United Nations resolution, while the Arabs decided not to do so and attacked. And this was the first war, what we call the independence war of the state of Israel. And I'm telling you this because the debate, which we have also now in Israel, it's basically the same. Whether we would hold the entire land or accept the idea of two states for two peoples. Now, I support the idea of two states for two peoples. And you were talking about your father, how he whether it was a change of mind or having more and more understanding what needs to be done. So I believe in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land, but I do believe that the only way to keep the values of Israel as a Jewish democratic state and to have a Jewish majority within this tiny place and to live in peace with our neighbors is by trying anyway to achieve peace with the Palestinians based on the idea of two states for two peoples, that each state gives an answer to national aspiration of different peoples. And when I'm being asked not to say sometimes being under attack, how can I, what will, what will your parents would think about you speaking about dividing the land, I share uh, this story. When I decided to join politics, my father was not uh, alive, but my mother was, and she was really a great warrior. 
And um, when I started in politics talking about the idea of two states, creating a Palestinian state, I hope that she doesn't listen <laughs> to the radio. She's doing something else. And then uh, after one of the interviews, I got a phone call. I do remember this phone call until now. And she said, listen, I just uh, saw you on television talking about the Palestinian state. I want to, to know that this hurts me a lot. But we fought for the establishment of the state. And I see young people living for America, living our state. So we didn't fight to create a state just for us, the old guys. So make your own decision for the future of my grandsons, basically your children. So altogether, this was the reason for me to join politics. It was 1995, a few weeks before Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated because of the peace treaty that he signed with the Palestinians. And I felt that my voice was not being heard. Because on one hand, you are this group that I grew up among them, speaking about the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land. How can Rabin sign a peace treaty with the Palestinians, giving this land to them? And on the other hand, my friends, well, I live in Tel Aviv. Most of my friends supported the idea of uh, uh, or the Oslo Agreement. But yet they waited for the new Middle East to fall on our shoulders. And I said, come on. It's not going to happen that way. Because it's a tough neighborhood and because the Oslo Agreement didn't give an answer to all the core issues, basically postponed most of the issues. And I was a lawyer. I practiced law. I'm a better lawyer than a politician, I think. <laughs> and I said, OK, what is this agreement postponing all the issues to, to the end? If I wouldn't uh, uh, give a client of mine the possibility to sell his second-hand apartment and give the keys of the apartment without getting the full consideration, the full amount of money. And this is more important than just selling a second-hand apartment. And I decided to join politics. It was one Yom Kippur, one day. Before that, I never dreamt of joining politics. But I decided to do so because I thought that I want to leave something for my children that is better than just a bank account as a lawyer, but hopefully uh, a state that is living in peace. Now, I told you that uh, this is what I believe in. This is the right thing to do. I negotiated twice. I didn't succeed in achieving peace. But there are also some misunderstanding uh, about the situation when uh, from the outside there are those looking at the conflict. And it was important for me to share with you that the conflict started before the State of Israel was established that the creation of the State of Israel is not the reason for the conflict, but it is part of the solution. And the solution was kind of just solution to give the possibility to two different national groups, one Zionism that created the State of Israel, and the other, the Arabs, to create their own state. And this is a national conflict that's still going on, and it's important to say that this is national conflict, unlike the religious conflict that we are facing. Because religious conflicts are unsolvable. It's not about borders. It's not about something that I can negotiate. It's about who we are. It's about the way we express our faith and our values. And therefore, it's very important, I believe, to try and solve the conflict before it turns into a religious conflict. And it can turn into a religious conflict. Jerusalem. It's the most sensitive, emotional issue ever. And therefore, I believe the time works against those believing in the idea of two states for two peoples. I believe that this is something that uh, reflects an Israeli interest. It's not a favor to the Palestinian, nor, nor a favor to the Arab world, or not even a favor to the President of the United States, any President of the United States. <laughs> but Let's talk again, a kind of a look at the region from a bird-eye point of view. And let's think in a more strategic manner. I mean, to make decisions in this neighborhood, not just telling personal stories, but to decide what is the right thing to do. And when you look at the region from a bird-eye point of view, basically in the most simplistic way, let's speak about the bad guys and the good guys. The bad guys are those representing this religious 
uh, war, not accepting the right of Israel to exist or the right of other Gulf states and others to exist in this region. And you can have them being represented uh, as states, Iran, as terrorist organization that are basically the proxies of Iran in the region, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas uh, on the Palestinian uh, Authority. And when you look at this, on one hand, you have the bad guys. On the other, the more pragmatic states and leaders, you would say, okay, let's work together, the good guys against the bad guys. And this is the new allies and alliances that we need to have in the region. But it's not that simple. Because sometimes it's not just a state, but sometimes these are organizations that are uh, using the soil of another state. And I will share uh, with you my experience from the first day of the second war in Lebanon. Israel was attacked from Lebanese soil by Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization and the proxy of Iran. And I was Minister of Foreign Affairs, quite new in the job. All of us were new. It was a new government in Israel. And we met July 12th, and we needed to decide what to do. Now, this is a complicated situation, because on one hand, you have in Lebanon, you had, it changed, uh, a legitimate government that is being embraced by the international community. And on the other hand, you have an armed militia, that is abusing the political situation in Lebanon and attacking Israel. So what would we do? Should we attack Lebanon as a state? This is the easiest thing to do. But now we are facing what we call an asymmetrical war between states and terrorist organizations. And I got a phone call that night from Condi Rice saying, beware. You don't want to topple this Lebanese, fragile Lebanese government. If you want to act against Hezbollah, to act against Hezbollah, that's fine. Rightly so. And this decision made this war more complicated. Because now we should look and find where these terrorists are and try to avoid civil casualties. And this happened all the time, in any military operation, you have civil casualties, especially when Hezbollah hide his own missile in apartments. So this is what we faced when we need to make decisions. It's not that easy, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, so let's fight them. And more than that, and this is also connected to what you say, this was the moment in which I understood that just military operation cannot work. I know that there are those saying, also in Israel, oh, let's unleash the army. They will kill everybody and we can live happily ever after. It's more complicated than this. And during the war, the first question that I asked when we started this war, I asked the generals, what's the definition of victory when we act against terrorist organization? What is the moment in which we know that we succeed? I mean, we all remember in Israel, Six-Day War, what a victory. But this is not the same thing anymore. And the problem is that when a state is fighting terrorist organization, we want a victory. What they want is just to survive. And the moment in which we stop, somebody would come out of his shelter, say, you know, I won. I'm talking about Nasrallah or another uh, terrorist. This is a moment you feel, okay, so what we've done. And therefore, since the second day of the war in Lebanon, I start working with the American administration, with the international community, to find the way to change the situation in Lebanon according to a United Nations Security Council resolution with international forces that would come and change uh, the situation. But the other problem that I uh, uh, discovered was that the situation of terrorist organizations that are participating in election, I mean, come on. Few months before that, we had elections uh, on the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas, which is also a designated terrorist organization, wanted to participate in election. I was Minister of Justice those days. And I looked at all the constitutions of the world to see whether it's possible 
for somebody who supports terror to participate in elections. I mean, elections or democracy is more than just elections. And the first rule of democracy is that the monopoly of the use of force is by governments, not by armed militia. So I um, had this conversation with the United States and I said, we shouldn't let them participate in election. They need to choose bullet or ballot. And the answer was, ah, they are not going to win. So they won. And until now, we are facing in Lebanon and in Gaza Strip the same situation. In Lebanon, we have a designated terrorist organization that with another arm is part of the government. And I don't understand it. How can you legitimize an arm of a terrorist organization? Like I'll kill something, somebody and I would say, no, it's not me, it's my arm. <laughs> and I tried to convince also those days that we would have a global understanding, a universal set of decisions that those who want to participate in democratic process need to accept in advance certain parameters. One, that the monopoly of the use of force is by the government and not by armed militia to renounce violence and terrorism and to accept uh, rule of law. It didn't happen, unfortunately. <laughs> Trust me, I tried to convince administration after administration and uh, in the day in which they discover uh, some of Hillary's email, one of them was mine, trying to <laughs> explain and to say that this is time to accept and to adapt the universal code and that the United States should uh, lead it. So, as I told you, the good news is that all the other Gulf states during all these uh, wars and operations, whether against Hezbollah or Hamas, they are on our side. They don't want these proxies of Iran and those that represent this religious ideology to win. But they have a glass ceiling in their relations with the state of Israel. And the glass ceiling is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They cannot make peace with Israel and normalize their relations with Israel as long as we have this conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. This is another reason, not the major reason, not the, the, the only reason, to try and find a solution between us and the Palestinians. Because in 2002, the Arab world put on the table an offer to Israel saying, if you would make peace with the Palestinians, we would normalize our relations with you. So this is another opportunity. If we make peace with the Palestinians, the same day, this is a huge change in the situation of Israel in the region, strategic situation of Israel in the region. The moment is not just peace between Israel and the Palestinians, but the entire world is changing. But unfortunately, looking now, let's have another zoom into the situation on the Palestinian side. I was talking about the good guys, the bad guys, the terrorists, religious, national. We have both on the Palestinian side. On the Palestinian side, uh, we have Hamas, terrorist organization, represent religious war, would not accept the right of Israel to exist, is not willing to renounce violence and terrorism, is not even willing to accept Oslo Agreement, the peace treaties between Israel and the Palestinians. And on the other side, in the West Bank, we have a legitimate Palestinian government I negotiated with, but they are too weak. They cannot even visit Gaza Strip where, where Hamas is. So what are we doing? Should we wait until we would find a partner on the other side? So the idea is, well, some of you are businessmen here, I think. Uh, as a lawyer, as I said, I was thinking about the situation like, I have somebody who has a signature rights on a bank account which is empty. This is Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas. He's the head of the PLO, he's the president of DPA, and he has the permission from the entire Palestinian people to sign peace treaty with Israel. Now the bank account is empty. He cannot deliver, frankly, not in Gaza. But since I believe the time works against us, I thought that the best thing to do is to negotiate with him and to find a way to reach understanding on all the core issues, and then the implementation can be in stages. 
And why is that? Because like in real life, now you have somebody, the next day you don't know what's coming next, who's coming next. And this is exactly the situation that we are facing now. I don't know who's coming next, who's going to replace Abu Mazen and Mahmoud Abbas. It can be Hamas, it can be chaos, it can be others from his own party, but this is the unknown. So it's better to try and reach a solution now. I tried, I didn't succeed, but there was also a moment of new opportunity. President Trump was elected in the United States. In the Arab, in the Gulf states, they were so frustrated from uh, uh, Obama's policy toward Iran. They felt that the agreement with Iran is not uh, good enough. They were thinking that now Trump is going to take, to use some force or to do something dramatic against Iran. They were quite happy. I don't want to say that they danced in the, uh, the Saudis, but they were they expected uh, something that would change the situation in the region. And then Trump said in his first meeting with Netanyahu that he wants to make a deal. The ultimate deal, the deal of the century, peace between Israel and the Palestinians. So in a way, there was opportunity here of security and peace. Security when it comes to the threat coming from Iran and peace with the Palestinians. But then, uh, you know, I was thinking about President Trump on one hand, one day saying, make America great again. When he said it, I thought, okay, that's fine, because make America great again is make America the leader of the free world. Yes, the policeman of the region, because sometimes we need also policemen. This is the situation. But then, when it changed into America first, the meaning is that the United States doesn't want to be involved. And we need leaders. I'm talking about in terms of states. I'm not talking about personals. And the United States for Israel is the leader of the free world. Few words about the relations between Israel and the US. This is a major part of Israel's security. Not just because of money or weapon. Because when our enemies are looking at Israel, they don't see just this tiny place. They see the United States of America. And they know that if something happened to us, so the United States of America will be there. And this is also something that is very important for Israelis. And why I said that there is an opportunity? Because every peace treaty is based on compromises. Compromises by the Palestinians, compromises by Israel. There is no Palestinian leader who can make an agreement, this kind of compromises without the support of the Arab world. And now the Arab world, they want Trump to act against Iran. So this is a leverage. He can convince them to help the Palestinians make the right decisions toward peace. And these states really want to make peace with Israel because they understand that Israel is not the enemy anymore. And because they know how Israel is advanced in terms of intelligence and technology. And we see some changes. I mean, I... Uh, met Mr. Jameson in Bahrain, first visit of an Israeli formal visit, uh, open meetings with Bahraini government. So we have these changes, but yet they cannot make it public. They cannot take the last step forward. And for Israel, why the role of the United States is very important? Because every uh, Israeli uh, understands the importance of the relations. And it's easier for an Israeli, I wanted to say it's easier for an Israeli leader, but basically I believe that leadership, the meaning of leadership is to make the decisions no matter what, your, uh, what is the public opinion. But it's easier for Israeli politicians to make the decision and come to the Israeli public and say, well, we didn't want to, but the United States of America. <laughs> So this was the moment of opportunity. And when Trump said, yes, I want to make the deal, I don't, I'm not sure that you remember, but as Israeli, I remember his press conference with Netanyahu and say, one state, two states, I don't care. And everybody laughed. I mean, who cares? And I said, no, that's fine. Because he says, I want a deal. 
And the deal is not between him and Netanyahu, and not between Netanyahu and his far-right government. It's between Israel and the Palestinians. And in order to have a deal, so the meaning is a consent between those two sides. So if he wants to think outside of the box, that's fine by me. As long as we end the conflict. Because the goal is to end the conflict, not just to create a state of that. But then the situation that we are facing now is that, in a way, we miss this opportunity. I don't see a deal that would end the conflict coming for the United States in the near future. I mean, there are papers, uh, there is a plan, but the Palestinians are not willing even to, to have discussions with the United States of America about the nature and the substance of the plan. In Israel, we face the election, and please don't ask me what's going to be the nature of the next <laughs> government in Israel, because I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, and anyway, it would be a government that it would be also difficult to make the huge decisions that are needed. And with Iran, at first, Trump decided to pull uh, the U.S. to pull out uh, from the deal. And no matter what you think about the deal, pulling out is one thing, but it should be replaced with a strategy, with a policy. And nobody knows what is the strategy now. And Iran is getting stronger. And when the United States is pulling out from the region, and the president of the United States is saying, I don't want to be the policeman of the world, there is no vacuum. So either somebody else would get the lead, will take the lead. Putin is there, but Russia is not strong enough to replace the United States of America in the region. We can face chaos, or other elements will try and take better positions. And what we see now, at the beginning, we see Iran and we see also Turkey. And Turkey is a strange thing because Turkey is a member of NATO. And now Erdogan just a few weeks said that he wants to have a nuclear weapon when as a member of NATO you have a nuclear umbrella. And uh, I don't even speak about the way he acted against the Kurds. And this is part of an ideology as well that wants to uh, uh, replace or to go back to the days of the Turkish as, 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 as leaders and superpower in the region on one hand. On the other, Iran. And what worries us when it comes to Iran is that we would have, you see, Tehran is here. Uh, well, we have Iraq on their way. And in Iraq, you have uh, Shia that are working, that Iran controls. I must say now that we have some demonstrations in Iraq these days that are not accepting the Iranian involvement in Iraq, but yet this is what they are doing. That let's continue to Syria. And in Syria, Iran was involved in the civil war there, very close relations with Assad, and continue to Lebanon, in which they have Hezbollah as their own proxy. And this is really something that uh, creates a threat not only to Israel, but to the entire region. This is something that we cannot afford. And therefore, the real question, what's coming next? Since I believe not just uh, speaking about threats, but also to see what are the opportunities, I would suggest, if I'd been now in uh, decision-making in Israel, not to give up the attempts to try and re-energize the negotiations with the Palestinians, with or without the United States. To work and try to convince Gulf states that we should work together in an understanding that we cannot afford stronger Iran, and that Israel is sincere in our attempt to achieve peace uh, with the Palestinians. To call again and to have an intimate discussion with the United States in an understanding that their involvement is crucial because otherwise each state, each leader, each organization would decide what is his 
or its best interest, and it doesn't mean that we, it, it works with the interest of the other states in the region. And therefore, the Middle East now is explosive. I believe that we missed an opportunity that we had. I think that the idea of the United States, you know, leaving the region is something that the impact is quite dangerous. There are different possibilities. Either the United States will decide to work together with different uh, states and leaders in the region to decide what is the strategy. And uh, the other is that we will do it as different powers in the region without, without uh, uh, real involvement of the United States. I want to say something else. It's very important here to say it in the United States. The relations with the United States was also always about deterrence, about working closely, uh, about no surprises. One would not surprise the other. But it was never, never, never about sending American soldiers to defend Israel. Something which is very important to say. It was always about Israel defending itself by itself, but with an understanding that we are the allies of the United States of America. So this is what we are facing. Uh, I wish I don't want to end this uh, uh, discussion or this speech in this uh, sad uh, note. Uh, so I would like maybe to share with you what Arik Sharon used to say when we faced this kind of challenges. Arik Sharon was uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, Ariel Sharon. I work quite uh, close to him. And uh, when we faced this kind of problems in the future, and this is the usual in the Middle East, and the choice as an Israeli decision maker is usually between bad options. He used to tell us a story. And the story was about his father. His father was a farmer. And he used to take him to the field. Now it's Israel. It's very hot. And after a few hours, Arik Sharon, as a child, used to say to his father, well, let's stop and go home. Look how much we have to continue and to work. And it's too hot. So his father used to tell him, don't look forward, look backwards. Look at what we already achieved. And this is something that gives us always the strength and the power. Because when I'm looking backwards about the state of Israel, that is really a miracle in the Middle East, successful startup nation, entrepreneurs, contributing to the world, uh, this is something to be proud of. And until now, we succeeded in meeting all these challenges. So I hope that this would be also in the future. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.